And the liver does expand during the day for bile production and handling more toxins through food ingestion. It starts to shrink at night for a circadian rhythm. So if you have that you know, snack before bed, it's going to keep your liver from shrinking down and being able to repair itself more efficiently to lead to non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Hello, this is Dr. Diva Nagula. Welcome to From Doctor to Patient where our goal is to bring you topics of discussion that will educate you on the various healing modalities to help balance the mind, body, and spirit. Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Nagula with another episode from Doctor to Patient. Today we are joined by John Brisson. John is the author of the Amazon bestseller, In Digestive Health, Fix Your Gut, The Definitive Guide to Digestive Disorders. Due to his extensive knowledge on the subject of gut health, John has been tapped by prominent supplement companies as an educator and collaborator on product formulation. As a lifestyle counselor, he has logged tens of thousands of hours assisting people with digestive disorders and coaching them to improve their overall health. John applies his experience and ample research full-time to the construction of a dynamic, evolving database of actionable, evidence-based information on digestive health. He has been coaching for over eight years, and his goal is to help return people to a healthy lifestyle. John, welcome. Thank you very much, Dr. Nagula. Thank you. I'm very interested in your story. You have a very interesting story where you used your own knowledge and your own passion to heal yourself and improved your overall well-being. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yes. Um, I developed a medical condition called uh, laryngeal reflux, which is also known as silent reflux. It's been about almost 10 years ago now. And I've had health issues off and on my whole life. I was born about two and a half, three months premature back in 1985. Uh, my appendix burst when I was a teenager, and I went a week before I had it removed. I should have died from that. Um, and they had to go back in and open me up and do a peritoneal wash. I lost about, I went down from like 170 down to about 100 pounds. And then had, after the appendectomy, um, had uh, have to have a hernia mesh put in about a year later. I was at abdominal hernia occur from having um, the open me back up and the peritoneal wash had to been done. So I've had a lot of health issues and the silent reflux, it was different. It, after all those gut issues that I had previously beforehand in my adolescence, um, my, I never had gastritis. I always thought I had an ironclad stomach for the most part. I could eat whatever I wanted <laughs> and for the, you know, didn't have any issues. Um, and so uh, I, my stomach started burning and I was like, okay, well, this is weird. So I went to the doctor and they kept trying to figure out, okay, why are you having gastritis? They did an endoscope. They really didn't find anything, just, you know, mild irritation, inflammation in my stomach. And I, that's when I also started developing silent reflux too as well, where I was get typical reflux where you have heartburn and you feel it in your throat and your chest and there's pain and, and burning. I didn't have any of that. I had a, uh, kept clearing my throat and, uh, and yeah. uh, had like globalist pharyngitis where I felt like I had a lump in my throat and, and my sinuses were draining, had a lot of post-nasal drip and uh, my ears felt full. 
it took me a while to see an ENT doctor for them to eventually diagnose me with silent reflux. And, and uh, they just kept wanting to give me proton pump inhibitors and it wasn't doing yeah. anything. Right. So I started researching extensively about gut health uh, around that time because I, nothing anybody was suggesting me was really working. And where I live in Fayetteville, North Carolina, it's strictly conventional. There's very little integrative medicine or even naturopathic medicine here. So eventually it led me down to, to research and discovering that eventually I had H. pylori dysbiosis in my stomach and my esophagus. And it had originally occurred, uh, I went to a fish fry at my uh, grandmother-in-law's house and must have drank some contaminated water at H. pylori at the time. And I was taking a lisinopril as an ACE inhibitor for borderline blood pressure. And lisinopril uh, depletes zinc. There's multiple studies that show that lisinopril depletes zinc. Of course, zinc is important for well, I mean, it's more than two things, but two main things um, that was applicable to my condition was one, zinc is very important for immune system regulator. And two, it's very important for testosterone. So both of those led to me getting the H. pylori and dealing with low T and symptoms of that for many years until I figured out that that was the problem. And zinc carnosine was actually one of the first supplements that helped me, funny enough. How soon did you start feeling improvement after the zinc supplement? With both the silent reflux and testosterone. Uh, testosterone took a little bit because zinc carnosine works more locally on the intestinal tract and little zinc is actually absorbed into the body uh, compared to taking a standard zinc supplement. But I mean, as far as the silent reflux, it made it about 20 to 30% better uh, within about two weeks. Wow, and the testosterone crazy. boosting came over time. I mean, also I learned about circadian rhythm and diet and started eating more meat and healthy fats and started getting sunlight. And that really made a difference too in testosterone um, as well. But yeah, I, I throughout learning all that, I started Fix Your Gut. Um, I was helping a friend who I met on the Bulletproof forums. I remember listening to Dave Asprey. The first time he was on Joe Rogan and it blew my mind. <laughs> um, and, I, and I met uh, my business partner there, Titus Wilson, and another partner fixture got Jason Hooper, who actually used to work for Bulletproof, um, designed some of the early supplements with Dave. We found a fixture gut and I've been coaching and helping people and writing blogs and doing podcasts ever since then. Yeah, I commend your work. Is There's not, I mean, there's, I can, there's so much of information that's on the internet and a lot of people just have no knowledge of what gut issues are and if they're suffering from them or not. I want to just like simplify this to our listeners. I mean, why would someone want to even approach healing their gut? What is advantageous? Why, why is it even compromised and what does it do if it is compromised? Well, I mean, for people who, okay, let's say, let's take someone who's not having any gut issues per se, they're asymptomatic. The person thinks they're, you know, relatively healthy. You'd want to make sure that you have a healthy microbiome, that your microbiome is well diverse. Studies have shown a more diverse microbiome, the more organisms that are in a person's microbiome, the more likely they are to be healthy. And you know, there are certain probiotic bacteria in most cases, or you know, bacteria that tend to improve our health rather than harm our health. And those would be um, Lactobacillus bifidobacterium, uh, Rosaberia, Fecal bacterium Prasninski, uh, Acromantia mucophilia. Some bacterioids, sometimes bacterioids can be opportunistic as gram-negative. Sometimes um, they can be very helpful. But there are certain strains of bacteria that we seem to be more healthy for our digestive system than others. So you and want to have the- Compromised by- Antibiotics, diet, poor diet. 
stress, glyphosate. Glyphosate's been shown to greatly reduce lactobacillus and bifidobacterium colony forming units or concentrations within the digestive tract. Uh, Non-native EMF exposure, exposure to, to Wi-Fi and 4G and 5G will have some effect on bacteria. We quite don't know what it will be yet. Um, circadian rhythm. I mean, there are studies that show that actually getting sunlight, it's not the vitamin D production that has a positive effect on your microbiome. It seems to be you actually being getting hit with the ultraviolet radiation from the sun and somehow or another, either through quantum sensing where bacteria communicate with one another and the skin on the bacteria on the skin are communicating with the bacteria in your gut, or just because some of that UV penetrates the skin, we really don't know, but it does cause a favorable, favorable bacterial microbiome in, in, in your digestive tract. Right. It's interesting because I'm, I'm a physician. I come from a Western medicine background and it wasn't until I got sick and I got diagnosed with stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma that I d discovered and researched and found that Western medicine wasn't going to fix me. You know, there are obviously some phenomenal ways that Western medicine can heal, but mine was this chronic disease that I developed over time and no one was addressing the root of the problem. And I had to figure out what the root of the problems were. And I had discovered that most likely it was gut compromise that caused immune compromise and all that was attributed to probably eating very poorly and being stressed out all the time. It was something that happened over many, many years. It wasn't something that happened just over one night. Um, in addition, I had multiple antibiotic exposures over the course of my life prior to being diagnosed. And that obviously just depletes everything and really ruins your, your gut microbiome. And so it's for people who are, are listening, you know, most of the listeners, you know, have questions and, or really want answers in terms of how to improve their immunity. And you and I know that addressing the gut health is of most importance. So what would you say, recommend, what would you recommend? What's the first things these people who are seeking some answers should start doing? Diet is very subjective, yeah. um, but we do know that eating within, eating within season, eating locally if all possible, you know, organic if possible, grass fed if possible, where you're getting your meat and eating only during the daytime per circadian rhythm, eating two to three meals and trying your best not to eat at night. Cause there's a article that I love to quote where it says doctors can't decide what you should eat, but they do know when, when you should eat. And the liver does expand during the day for bile production and handling more toxins through food ingestion. It starts to shrink at night for a circadian rhythm. So if you have that you know, snack before bed, it's going to keep your liver from shrinking down and being able to repair itself more efficiently it can lead to non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So you know, just doing those, eating, just doing those things alone as much as you possibly can will help your overall digestion and microbiome. I mean, using a squatty potty to maintain proper motility is very important to prevent against dysbiosis. Like I'm pretty sure you've heard of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth syndrome or sure. SIBO. So motility is very important for that. Um, now I would say for most people, a diet that's more or less in carbohydrates, uh, if you're going to eat carb carbohydrates, more healthy carbs like carrots, parsnips, um, rice, um, but you got to watch out for arsenic and rice. You want to make sure it's organic. Uh, sweet potatoes, um, squash would probably be best for some and getting a good amount of healthy fats and healthy meats. Um, but I mean, there's a wide variety. Some people do well on a ketogenic diet. Some people do well on a more 
carb heavy diet, like perfect health diet, which is about 100 to 150 grams of carbohydrates a day. You know, there's a lot of diet is so subjective, uh, especially when it comes to gut health too, as well, because everybody's microbiome is different. Right. Um, and, and some people can eat large amounts of protein and feel great, but the moment they put a carb in, they start bloating. Right. Um, and, or vice versa, you know. So, and then eating fermented foods when all possible, you know, which you can tolerate. Some fermented foods are better than others. I'm not what necessarily a fermented food example. Um, yogurt. I'm not nearly a, much of a fan of yogurt just because yogurt contains a lot of sugar in most cases. Now, you can get yogurt that does not have any sugar in it. Um, but it, it's, it, it, it's, it's, bit, it's, it's bitter tart. Um, <laughs> and, and, and it does have a lot of histamine producing strains. So right. that's the thing. If you, you know, if you have histamine issues, you know, post-nasal drip, asthma, allergies, hives, then, um, you probably have too many histamine producing bacteria in your gut or your body has a difficult time producing dimine oxidase, the enzyme that's used to break down histamine, uh, within the body and H and MT, uh, the enzyme that's used to methylate histamine in the brain. Uh, so you might want to avoid fermented foods that would be good, you know, for people who have, are able to process the histamine normally. Mm-hmm. I usually recommend kombucha. I like yeah. uh, Dr. Bruntausen's kombucha. It seems to be the best. Um, a lot of people do very well in kombucha to glucaric acid. It's very good for detoxifying the liver. Kimchi, sauerkraut, all of those. Uh, kefir is okay, but people with yeast and histamine issues should definitely avoid kefir. Uh, but the, the, you know, fermented foods are a good way of giving yourself both prebiotics, especially if you're eating cabbage because the, you know, kimchi or sauerkraut, because the cabbage is going to have a lot of inulin in it as a prebiotic. And you're going to get the, the probiotic bacteria like lactobacillus plantarum, which is in sauerkraut and kimchi, which can be very, very beneficial in people who are, are, are you know, are dealing with dysbiosis or, or wanting a good bacteria living in their colon. And so. it's, it's, I guess um, the assumption is, is that when you consume prebiotics, it's a way of feeding the good bacteria that's in your gut, right? Without the proper prebiotics, you know, all these good bacteria that's supposed to help you just pretty much will die off eventually and just not be useful for helping with your immune system and restoring your, um, your natural gut flora. And also with probiotics, so that's a very good everyone is talking about it's like the talk right now that's really hot is probiotic and there's so many variations and so much variations in the terms of the strains that are present as well as the volume and the actual numbers so what can you advise our listeners the best type of probiotic to purchase and what to look out for and since you're really a guru on supplements I recommend Gut Pro or Custom Probiotics. Usually when it comes to probiotics, I use the method do by less harm. So probiotics should almost be treated as medicine in a lot of ways because, for example, if someone has histamine issues and they take probiotics that contain histamine strains like lactobacillus acidophilus or lactobacillus ruditary, for example, it can make their histamine symptoms much, much worse and end up doing more harm than good. And it's the same with people like me who had TH1 dominance, which uh, is, is, is expression more of inflammation with the helper cells of the immune system. So when I took lactobacillus plantarum, which increases TH1, which is, can be very good with a person with histamine and, and allergies who have a, a very low TH1, very high TH2, which TH2 is histamine. But for me, it made my TH1 go even higher, and I started getting very crippling, really bad joint pain uh, oh, that wow. I didn't have previously beforehand. So usually I'd recommend, if you're looking for a catch-all, 
of, of different strains that is not histamine producing or does not produce uh, delactate, which people delactate dysbiosis can get a lot of brain fog when they ingest lactic acid, uh, well, I say lactate producing probiotics. But um, I like Gut Pro, I like Custom Probiotics. Um, both of those have delactate histamine strains. But for what most people- volume of, of, of the actual amount of bacteria that's in these capsules? Um, is there, you know, you see 5 billion, 1 billion, is it advantageous or disadvantageous to have more? It depends. Some people need, like the gut probe comes in a powder. and It comes in capsules, but also comes in a powder. And some people may need 100 to 200 billion for them. Because the, the, the science now is going, okay, so do these bacteria survive? Right. Do they, are they alive when you ingest them? Do they actually populate the intestinal tract or, or take hold? Or is it that you're ingesting these bacteria, the bacteria die off and your immune system reacts to the dead bacteria in a positive or negative light? We really don't know. Studies are all over the place in trying to determine actually really what happens when a person ingests probiotics. Yeah. <laughs> so as far as like, you know, 100 billion or if, if someone's dealing with motility issues where they're constipated, usually the less probiotics, the better, because you don't want those probiotics to take hold in their small intestine and make SIBO worse or cause right. SIBO. But if a person has normal motility uh, and they want to take something to protect themselves against, you know, antibiotic dysbiosis when they're taking antibiotic, like Clostridium difficile dysbiosis in the hospital, then, you know, taking gut pro, maybe 25 to 50 billion, maybe even higher if needed to prevent against that could be very beneficial or taking Saccharomyces boulardii, as long as they don't have any yeast issues, yeast dysbiosis issues or, or, or histamine issues, it could be very beneficial at preventing C. diff. But as far as the number, the right number per person, it's very subjective. Mm -hmm. um, and you kind of just have to take low amounts first to see how you react to them. If you react well, then over time you can gradually increase the amounts yep. um, and see if that helps. And with people who are prescribed antibiotics and obviously, you know, you probably believe um, are under the same line of thinking when we say that antibiotics are probably overprescribed, but in situations where it is prescribed and a patient takes it, how would you recommend they take a course of uh, probiotics or address their gut compromise secondary to the antibiotic? A couple of things. One, most of the time antibiotics don't constipate. Most of the time they cause diarrhea, but if they do constipate you, you want to make sure that you maintain motility. Maybe make sure you stay well hydrated, use a squatty potty, maybe add a little bit of magnesium, uh, citrate or malate to get the bowels moving if an antibiotic does constipate you. Because the worst thing in the world you want to have to do is a complete shutdown or slowdown of motility and Absolutely. all the bacteria settle in you know, small intestine. And the MMC, the migrating motor complex, is the peristalsis waves that moves fecal matter, but also moves bacteria along too as well and keeps it because your, your colon is where a majority of the bacteria are in your digestive system. Your small intestine has some bacteria and your stomach even has some bacteria, but has even less than small intestine. So you kind of want to keep those areas kind of, you want bacteria where they're supposed Ooh, to be. Yeah. And, uh, so, you know, maybe making sure that your stomach is acidic, if all possible, during that time period, too. Uh, that's, make a sure good, maybe that's a good point. You know, when we talk about the importance of stomach acidity and the number of people that are on PPIs or H2 blockers, you know, it's fascinating how we're meant to have acid in our body, <laughs> right? I mean, so depleting our acid causes a whole cascade of events that, even, that further compromises our immune system and our digestive tract. And it's interesting how every physician that's, that, that is sought out for, for stomach issues or pain 
first thing they're put on is an H2 blocker. And then if that doesn't uh, solve it, let's put you on this awesome PPI that we have. So, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? I 100% agree. And I'm not against conventional medicine at all. I think conventional medicine is more reserved for diagnostic medicine and for trauma. But when it comes to chronic conditions like most gut health issues are, or, or cancer, or even autoimmune conditions, conventional medicine has a poor track record because, like you said earlier, you don't really go over the root causes of the root issues of why a person develops these problems in the first place. So, for most people, if you have low stomach acid, you probably have a dysbiotic flora in your stomach that produces an enzyme called urease. Now your stomach produces urea through natural digestion. So when the bacteria produce urease, it cleaves the urea and turns it into ammonia. Which ammonia is very basic. That's why you probably have heard of the urea breath test for H. pylori to right. determine whether or not, you know, you, and it can actually technically test any bacteria that can produce urease other than H. pylori, but they just say you're positive for H. pylori. But our stomach acid is very crucial. It breaks down protein, it breaks down the food you eat, it activates pepsin, an enzyme that helps further break down protein in the stomach. Nothing you eat is sterile, not even food that you just cooked because your hands, the utensils, the plate, you're ingesting bacteria constantly, especially if you're eating raw food. If you're eating salads, you're eating bacteria. Your stomach acid is there as a first line of defense to prevent these microbes, some good, some bad, from colonizing Absolutely. your digestive tract. And it's not that proton pump inhibitors some he says how's your knee like if you have zollinger ellison syndrome where you have these non-cancerous tumors in your stomach that produce too much acid it may be necessary but for most people the cause of, of heartburn and reflux is not having too much acid for most people it's not having enough because what happens is we don't have enough you get this dysbiosis in your stomach so that produces bloating and that produces gas which forces you know your stomach anatomically to move upwards in most cases which can cause a hiatal hernia and weaken the lower esophageal sphincter the sphincter connects the stomach to the esophagus and in doing so that pressure and that gas forces because that's how gravity works it forces acid upwards and other stomach contents and pepsin and sometimes even bile if your pyloric sphincter is weak into the esophagus and that's how you get reflux disorders so it's 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 in my opinion ignorant <laughs> to, to, to tackle it as, okay, well, let's, let's, it's, it's the stomach acid's fault. Let, let's reduce the stomach acid. That's why, you know, some people on proton pump inhibitors, they do do better for a while, and that could be because, you know, less of these contents, at least acid, is affecting the esophagus, and proton pump inhibitors are antimicrobial because bacteria have a proton pump, you know, outside of their cell wall. And actually, there's some studies to show, too, that, it could actually affect human mitochondria because we have a proton pump as well in our mitochondria. Right. It's called the electron transport chain. Right. So it's a possibility that PPIs may cause drug symptoms similar to Flagwell and similar to Cipro and their way of affecting the mitochondria too in a very negative light. But, you know, PPIs are antimicrobial to a certain degree and that might be why some people feel better on them is because it does reduce the bacterial load in their stomach for some time until it gets, you know, until... There's so, such low stomach acid production, such low a barrier that eventually gets overridden and the person's symptoms return most right. of the time. I mean, that's fascinating. And I, and I see it all the time um, with patients. And, you know, now I question, you know, why and the, the length of time that they're on these medications and the ease of use. I mean, you can just go over to the counter and get, and get them mm -hmm. and, and you don't know whether to stop them or, or the length of time to be on it and people feel better on them immediately. So they automatically assume let's just be on it indefinitely. So um, I definitely have issues with that. Um, 
since you're, you know, you're, you have such an amazing story and the knowledge that you have is, is, is astounding. I'm just curious. Um, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners are too, but with your background and, um, what is your personal supplement regimen? Um, I myself take uh, magnesium malate. I take about 720 milligrams. I divide it up two capsules in the, uh, with uh, breakfast and two capsules with lunch. I take uh, three drops of nasian iodine, detoxidine, in the morning. I really am a supplement minimalist. I don't really take two. I take uh, fish oil um, when I don't eat seafood that day. I alternate between usually about two to three grams of ultimate okay. omega or, or I take, um, I sometimes switch over to cod liver oil, like Rosita cod liver oil. I switch back and forth. Um, what, what's the rationale for switching back and forth? So I get a little bit more vitamin A, a little bit of retinol. I mean, I do eat, I do eat, um, eggs and I, and I do eat, you know, butter and cheese and I eat liver. Sometimes I can't taste of it sometimes. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, uh, I, you know, it's important to get retinol. Vitamin A is very important, especially since I took Accutane as, as a teenager. And oh, yeah. That was a major. That's why I, my hair, it's from that. and it's it, uh, So, you know, vitamin A is very important to get natural retinol in. But, I mean, other than that, that's really all I take. I mean, sometimes if I, you know, if I'm sick. You don't sick, take anything to boost your immune, immune um, system? I usually just use circadian rhythm and, 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 and uh, sunlight exposure for that. Yeah. Now, if too much sun could be immunosuppressive, but getting in the right amounts, it could be immunostimulatory, especially in the summer when you're producing vitamin D. But sometimes I will, you know, if I think, you know, if, if there's a cold going around the house, I may, you know, take some vitamin C, some elderberry, you know, higher doses of zinc to see if I can, you know, keep it from happening or fight it off. But I mean, other than that, just in general, supplement wise, I'm, I'm a minimalist. I'm conservative. I'm even conservative with the people that I coach uh, because I think there can be too many supplements a person takes. I know Dave Asprey takes like something like 150 supplements a day. To me, that's right. just way too, that's way too much. I mean, right. I'm not saying that supplements cannot be health, healthy at all, but we have to treat some of them with, with, with the same as medicine or some of them with skepticism too, because when you're taking that many supplements, you don't know what's interacting. You don't know what's working. It can be, you know, very, very confusing. What if people have like objective data where there are deficiencies and they need these supplements and then oh, of course. you need to recheck to see if the deficiencies are corrected and then discontinue as appropriate. That's what I would imagine, right? Yes, very much so. You wouldn't want to take, you know, especially if you're taking something like zinc, if you just take it, infinitum without testing eventually you can develop copper deficiency and that can cause major problems in your you know your, your joints and, and your arteries and everything so yeah you have it's very very important for people i, I like spectracell uh testing as far as detailing de nutrient deficiencies and everything so yeah you don't most people someone you know when your doctor or, or coach tells you you got a nutrient deficiency you don't want to take that nutrient forever unless you have to now there's some people that may require certain supplementations of B vitamins, depending on methylation or, you know, myself, I take magnesium, even my magnesium blood level is about 6.4 and 720 milligrams. I can keep it there. So I'm probably having some magnesium stress related burning somewhere, hmm. but yeah, you're right. You wouldn't want to take most minerals or most vitamins, especially your fat soluble vitamins like D and vitamin A, or even B6 isn't fat soluble, but it can still cause nerve toxicity in large doses over a period of time. Uh, so you got to really be careful when you're supplementing, you know, you have to, you have to test, you have to make sure that, you know, levels are back up normally. And you don't, some of the supplements, if you supplement them forever and then correct dosages, you can really mess yourself up. Exactly. Yeah. I'm glad you pointed that out. We're close to running out on time, but before, uh, 
we leave, I really want to get your take on the poop transplant. We hear of those procedures occurring all the time. And there, there are times when it's useful and there are times when it's just, um, you know, a non-essential procedure. So, you know, what would you advocate? Would you recommend these to people? Only for Clostridium difficile. Yep. That's only where it's really been studied. And Clostridium difficile is primarily a, a colonic dysbiosis, even though it can cause small intestinal dysbiosis, especially chronic C. diff. Chronic C. diff has actually been associated with constipation, um, where acute C. diff is more your standard, you know, diarrhea. Um, but yeah, C. diff, definitely when done correctly, you want to make sure the donor screened if all possible, lower amount of pathogens. I mean, there are risks associated with its use. Now people say, well, we've done it for everything else. A Tavemount clinic is, you know, they're charging around $10,000 a pop for it and they're doing it for multiple sclerosis and autism and stuff like that and everything. And yeah, I'm sure some people have seen some benefit from it, but I've actually coached people with, especially if you have SIBO or motility issues, the, the first of all, if you have SIBO, if you go get, <laughs> you don't want a transplant. Yeah. It's not going to, it's not going to, it's not going to reach unless you do it orally. And even then, you know, it, it, it may, it's, this is a mess. I, I can't tell you how many people I've coached. I probably, I'd say probably about 30 or 40 at this point. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, people that have spent $10,000 at the team out clinic for, for, for a, for a fecal matter transplant and it doing nothing and it doing nothing. So, I mean, if you have C. diff, the studies are there. Yeah. Of course, it's better than, you know, <laughs> it's better than taking long, high dose flag, flag wool for a long period of time. You know, it's, it's definitely worth doing if nothing else works. But other than that, I'm not a fan. Yeah, I'm not a fan. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's, it, it's just amazing to me how people can offer these diagnostic or these uh, therapeutic procedures without any significant testing to see if a person is suffering from SIBO or any other uh, diseases that they might be having. So, yeah, I, I just, you know, that's interesting. Of course, you know, uh, the insurances will, if I'm not mistaken, they will reimburse four indications for C. diff. So um, that's where it's indicated. Well, John, um, if our listeners want to find you, what is the best way for them to, to locate you? Yes, uh, you can find me at FixYourGut.com, uh, FixYourGut on YouTube, uh, FixYourGut on Facebook, and FixYourGut on uh, Twitter. That's awesome. John, I really appreciate you being a guest on our podcast today. And I'd love to send you a free copy of my book that's going to be launched out um, on the 3rd of December. And yeah, if you have a chance to read it, love your feedback. Will do. Thank you very much, Dr. Nagula, for having me on.